I want you to take your Bibles and go to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, well, starting in verse 11 today. And I want to do a message. I was struggling with what to call it. Um, I kind of settled on law and conscience. Law and conscience. Another title I was thinking about is The Religious in God's Courtroom. The Religious in God's Courtroom. Now we're moving over to a more of a religious perspective and how God looks at people that think that they can get to heaven by the law or somehow they'll impress God by the law. And so we see in Romans chapter 2, verse 11, I'm going to read to verse number 16. It says, For there's no respect of persons with God. For as many as have sinned without the law shall also perish without the law. And as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience, also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Father, I ask, Lord, you would just give me the wisdom I need to preach this message with understanding. And I pray your Holy Spirit would have free reign to touch hearts, to open eyes. I pray, Lord, you'd help us to be alert to the spiritual needs today that we have. And I pray, Lord, that somehow this would help us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're turning to our attention now in this passage toward the religious Jew, basically versus the lost Gentile. And you would think that the religious Jew has an advantage over the lost Gentile. Well, in certain ways they did, but not in the way that we're dealing with in this passage. See, the, he's talking about the law. Now, what is the law? Now, on Wednesday nights, we've been looking at the book of Exodus, and we know that the law was given by God on Mount Sinai and given in three different sections, basically. You have the moral law, which is your Ten Commandments. You have the civil law, which is really how the Israelites were supposed to operate with one another and how they were supposed to keep justice and equity within their dealings with each other. And then there was a ceremonial law. And the ceremonial law is just simply a reflection of what Jesus Christ would have to do because they couldn't keep the other aspects of the law and that they had, he had to die for their sin. And so that's what the ceremonial law is all about. So today, of course, we know that uh, the law wasn't given to Gentiles. We weren't given the Ten Commandments. That's why we don't have the Ten Commandments up here and saying these were given to us because we have something better. We have something the Lord put in our hearts. And the Bible says that he has given us a conscience. In fact, every person on this planet has a conscience. And that conscience witnesses to them. And I don't care where you're from, the deepest, darkest jungles to the biggest cities in the world, God's plan is to put his law within our hearts. Now, we know a lost person can't have necessarily the whole law of God written on their hearts where they know what to do all the time. But isn't it amazing that a lost person actually knows the difference between right and wrong? That's what the atheists have a real problem with. They have a problem understanding why it is that someone who doesn't believe in God has a moral standard. And they know that some things are right and some things are wrong. And it doesn't matter where you go throughout this whole globe, it seems that the people on the other side of the globe feel the same way about it. And that's because they have a conscience. Now, it's not perfect. It's not going to save you. But God designed it for a reason. So what's happening here, the religious Jews would have the law written on stone. And they would say, we have an advantage because we have the law. We're closer to God because we have the law. We got our, our position nailed here because we're the ones with the law. And God's looking down at them and said, <laughs> don't think so highly of yourself that just because you got the law that somehow you're better than the man 
that doesn't have a law. And so what we have here is a contrast of law versus conscience. Now, they work together, and there's a reason for it. And so hopefully as I go through this, uh, I know it can be complicated, and, and sometimes I try to simplify it in my, in my preaching, and I hope the Holy Spirit can do that for you, you know, because <clears throat> I confuse myself sometimes, amen? But anyways, so what we're seeing here is there's a little difference between the Jew and the Gentile. There's no difference. And the scripture is very clear about that, and we'll look at some scripture in, re- in relation to this, uh, except for this. The Jew has a greater accountability to God because they've been given direct revelation by God himself. So it's not necessarily, it's an advantage, I guess, in a way, if you can keep it. But in all reality, the major thing is the accountability. See, it's all about light versus darkness. It's all about how much light do you have and how much light do you have access to. I remember one time I met this guy. Uh, we were working in construction, building roads, and, and he was a part of the Mennonite background. And I, and I was in Bible college, and so I wanted to witness to everybody. And we ought to do that even if you're not in Bible college, by the way. And, and so I went to him, and I started telling him about Christ. And he says, oh, oh, hold on there. He says, the more you tell me, the more I'm accountable for. And so he thought, he thought that the key was to shut the light off, and then that would make him less accountable. In fact, that's what the leaders teach them. Their pastors teach them that if you just keep yourself ignorant to the truth, that you won't be held accountable to it. Now, there's a problem with that, because the Bible doesn't say that. What the Bible says is this, is that you're accountable not necessary to the light that you can have right now, but you're accountable to the light that you could have and that you didn't want. So this man stands guilty before God. He's been given an opportunity to have the gospel presented, but he shut it off. Turn to the darkness. And that's why that passage says that this is a condemnation, that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light. And that's really the whole concept of that doctrine is keep yourself in the dark and then you're not accountable. That's deception. Because each one of us are accountable, not because we don't have the Ten Commandments to look at, but because each one of us have a conscience that God put in you. And do you understand that that's enough to condemn you? So there's really nowhere to run. (laughs) Because the thing that condemns you is inside of you. That's the witness against you. And we saw that in Romans chapter 1. It says that they were without excuse. Because that which may be known of God was manifest in them. Talking about the heathen, the lost. God gave them what they needed. Yet, they turned away from it. They loved darkness rather than light. That's the condemnation. Do you understand? As long as you're pointing towards the light, God will always bring you the rest of the way. I don't care where you are in this world, you can operate on the conscience you have and you turn to the light, whatever that is in that moment, and the Lord will always bring you to the step that you need to go to. See, there's two types of revelation. There's, or there's two types of grace. There's common grace. There's what's called provenient grace. There's grace that God has given all mankind. The lost, the saved, everybody on the planet has it. And that is you have a conscience and you have creation. And these are two great witnesses that are shouting out to people every day that I am God. God is alive. You have a creator. This is right. This is wrong called common grace but common grace isn't enough to save you you can't get born again by common grace you can only be born again by specific special revelation special grace and that's the gospel the gospel of the lord jesus christ do you understand that folks a lot of people say oh no god wouldn't let somebody that's never heard go to hell folks there's not somebody that's going to hell that could not have known 
If they're going to hell, it's because they chose darkness. Do you understand that? And it's not about whether they're in the jungles or in the places that were hard to find. Folks, I am far more concerned about the people down the street. They got churches on every corner, yet they're choosing darkness. They got people, I told somebody this week as we were knocking on doors, I knocked on the door and I was telling them, yeah, you know, I just turned away from church. I says, God has done everything he can to reach you. He's even sent you two witnesses today to your door. She kind of looks at me. God has done so much to reach people. It's not about lack of opportunity. What it is, it's a lack of choosing light. And that's a choice that's made in your heart according to your conscience. Whether you're in a jungle and folks, it's amazing when they go into some of these places, they already know who Satan is. He's already manifested himself in many ways. They already know that if there's a God, he's a good God. That's all they need to know. That's all they need. If they could just turn to that light and say, you know what? There is a God that created all of this. And he's got to be good because I know in my heart there's a difference between right and wrong and I don't want to do wrong, yet I do wrong all the time. And so in their heart they cry to this God that they don't know and God hears them because he loves them. And any man that would get saved, I'm going to tell you something, will get the opportunity to be saved and they will get the special revelation of God. Remember the, uh, the story of the evangelist Bill Rice, how that one chieftain went up in the tree every day and is calling out to God, I know you're there in the jungles of Africa. Yep. And one day God, by accident, sent this evangelist who was supposed to be doing a meeting somewhere but got kind of sidetracked into this village. He walks in there with his cowboy hat and cowboy boots. Yeah. What are the chances of a cowboy walking into this village? <laughs> And he gave them the gospel and they got saved. Folks, we've got to remember how great God is here. He is good. But it all starts with that initial response to the conscience. Now, it's a complicated thing. It's, I, I would need more time today to talk about your conscience and the time that I have. But I want to give you a little bit that maybe just helps you form an idea or a theology around this idea of conscience in your life. The first thing, I just want to go through the passage, though. First thing is, God does not show favoritism to Jews or Gentiles. He's not saying, oh, I'm favoring you, not favoring you. <laughs> the Bible is clear on that. Now, I understand, uh, it may be that the Israelites would say, what? <laughs> How dare you say that? But the thing is, God's been telling them that all along. To show respect to persons means to show partiality. To show favoritism. In Deuteronomy 10 verse 17 it says, For the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, a great God and mighty and a terrible, which regardeth not persons nor taketh reward. He says, not about that you're better than them. I'm not accepting you because you're better than them. He may have chosen Israel because he chose them for a purpose. But he didn't choose them morally. Do you understand? He didn't choose them because the Jews were more moral than the Greeks or the Gentiles. (laughs) And that's what he's trying to get across here in this passage. There are three groups of people on the earth. In 1 Corinthians 10, 32, it says this, Give none offense, neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. Those are the three major groups on this planet today. There are those that God has chosen to be his people within the national realm that one day will become that light to the Gentiles throughout the millennial reign. They are of the seed of Jacob, but they are also of the spiritual seed of Christ. Then there's the Gentiles, which basically makes up everybody else on the planet. Abraham was a Gentile. You go to Genesis chapter 10, it talks about the isles of the Gentiles. Why is that? Because there was nobody else on the earth. There was only Gentiles. Until God picked Abraham and says, Abraham, I'm going to make of you a great people. See, that's where Israel began. Actually, Abraham had a son by the name of Isaac, and Isaac had a son by the name of Jacob, 
and Jacob's name was changed to Israel, and now you see the children of Israel, the children of Jacob. Amen? So it has to be physical seed, but not just physical. We see at the end of the chapter, it also means they're of the spiritual seed because all the promises that have ever been given only come to fruition through Jesus Christ. Any promise you've ever been given comes to fruition through Jesus Christ. So the world can't claim the promises apart from Christ. The Jews can't claim the promises apart from Christ. And that's why they're in the position they are in today. Amen. They don't have the land. They don't have everything that God promised them. They're wondering why. Why God? Because you've rejected my son. And one day when he comes again and you'll turn your heart to him, then I will give you everything I have promised because you will receive Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And all those promises will come to fruition in that very moment because no promise has any power apart from the seed of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? And that's for you too, by the way. Amen? So you need Jesus. (laughs) He is the answer. And so, Jews... Gentiles and the church. It's important. The church is important. It's very important. (laughs) Ephesians chapter 2 verse 11 says this, Wherefore remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at the time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, ye who are sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. Jews, Gentiles, church is both in one. Do you understand? Now there is such a thing as Israel today, but Israel is incomplete because we're in a dispensation of the church. You know, the only thing that God is using today in this dispensation is the church. And that's why it doesn't profit you today to be a Jew or a part of Israel. It definitely doesn't profit you to be a part of the Gentiles. The only profit you have in this dispensation is to be a part of the church. Now there's the collective church thinking about the whole body of Christ that one day will be called up before the Lord and we will all be there. Everybody that's been born again, whether you've been Baptist or whatever you call yourself, born again people will be the church. (laughs) But that church is not practical today. It is expressing itself within local assemblies. That's the only way the church can express itself on this planet. There's no expression for an invisible body. (laughs) Amen. People like it that way because then they don't have to have a pastor, don't have to listen to anybody. But that's not the way God planned it. He planned that invisible church that's going to be gathered together before Christ one day to be expressed today within local assemblies. And that's why the word church comes from the Greek word ekklesia, means called out assembly called out and assembled. (laughs) The invisible church hasn't assembled yet. But one day it will in the rapture. That'll be a big assembly. (laughs) Amen. We call it the glorious church. The future glorious church. God had to show the unbelieving Jews that there was no moral difference between the Jew and the Gentile. This was hard for them. They, their whole existence, were taught by their leaders, especially within this time frame. See, because after Nehemiah, after the building of the walls, after he dealt with some of the problems that were going on there, you had 400 years of silence. There was no interaction between God and man. No supernatural revelation given to man. It's called the intertestamental period. 400 years. That's where the Maccabee Rebellion took place and all these different things and so forth. But during that time, there was a group that was formed called the Pharisees. The Pharisees, the very word means the separated ones. (laughs) Amen. So they were the religious elite. 
So what happened is you had this group that had the law, the moral law, that was given to show you this is God's standard. These Pharisees got so full of themselves, they thought, we have arrived. And so we are going to be called this group called the separated ones. And we will lead the people. And they began to write books formulating laws of their own making. And a lot of these laws is what Jesus referred to, saying that the commandments of men had made void the word of God. And so the Pharisees were a problem. (laughs) Amen. But we have the law. We've got the Mosaic law. And God's just trying to tell them, you don't even know what that is. You think you're morally superior to the Gentiles. And you're not. He's saying, you have the law in stone, but isn't it interesting that these Gentiles, they know what's right and wrong without your law? Wow. So morally, maybe they're not so far behind you. (laughs) Amen. So God says, I need to show the Jews some things. Even the disciples, Peter was caught up in this. In fact, all of them were. They all believed this in some form or the other. They grew up with these laws and these pharisaical system. And and so they weren't even allowed to go into a Gentile's house. We can't even talk to you. You're dirty. You're a dog. Until the Lord changed their mind. And that's where you had the the great vision in Acts chapter 10 where God gave Peter that vision on top of the the house in Joppa. You know, I saw that house. (laughs) Just kidding. There's at least three of them <laughs> in Israel. <laughs> this is the house where, no, that one is. And, that one, and it's funny because all the construction is post. Yeah. <coughs> Anyways, we won't go there. <laughs> Acts chapter 10, 28 says this. And he said unto them, Ye know how that it is an unlawful thing for a man that is a Jew to keep company or come unto another, one of another nation. But God hath showed me that I should not call any man common or unclean. So God had to change their mentality. Their mentality was the Gentiles, dirty dogs. We are the elite. Not realizing the only reason that God made them Jews or Israelites was so that he could use them to reach the Gentiles. (laughs) Because he loved them. But instead of becoming what God wanted them to be and witnesses to the Gentiles, they became this elite group, and that happens today to Christians. They allow their standards of holiness to become their mark of superiority. Not realizing that the laws that God give us and the, and the standards that we apply are not because we're so great, it's because we're so bad. <laughs> Do you understand that? <laughs> well, that church teaches dress standards. Yes, we do. And you know why? <laughs> because we actually understand how wicked men are. Yeah. Yeah, we understand how people get manipulated through dress. And you know what? We're beginning to learn what the world is known for generations and how these designers are actually designing it to be that way. Yet we as Christians, because we don't want to be told what to do. You can't tell me how to dress, preacher. How about I tell you what the world is trying to use? How the world is trying to use your fashion to cause men to lust. And the Bible says that they lust in their heart after you. They've committed adultery and broken the law of God. And if you have no concern about that, then how will you stand before God? Amen. Do you understand that? Modesty and the way we dress and the way we act has to do a lot to do with the weakness of man. We do that because we're weak. We do that because in our nature we are sinful. And that's why we have standards of holiness. Do you understand that? Some people walk around like their dress standard is their mark of spirituality. It's not. It's a necessity. It's a necessity. And preachers get the short end of the stick so many times because as soon as they preach it, somehow we're trying to tell my wife how to dress. How about we care about what's right and wrong? How about we care about the, the Gentile out there that is looking at the body of a good Christian lady? Amen? I know that's uncomfortable, but it's true. That's why, men, you need to start, stand up as a leader in the home. Because guess what? Your wives don't even understand sometimes. Because they don't think the same way as men. 
And that's where you as a man ought to stand up and say, guess what? That probably wouldn't be appropriate, daughter. <laughs> oh, Dad. <laughs> stand. You're doing it for right. You're doing it for righteousness sake. You're doing it because we're weak. You're doing it because you don't want to be a stumbling block. In fact, if there's one thing the Bible says not to be, is don't be a stumbling block. Forget all the other laws. Just don't be a stumbling block. That's enough right there. Now, I'm not going to get any more detail than that. <laughs> Some of you are saying, yeah, preacher, preach it. Others are saying, don't you dare, preacher. <laughs> but do you understand what I'm talking about here? The standards of holiness are simply because we're weak. And the Pharisees, they made it a mark of their spirituality. These are the elite ones. These are the separated ones. And God says, we need to deal with you a little bit. Just like you need to deal with those Christians that think that somehow you're better than someone else by the way you dress. Has nothing to do with it. I was thinking about that this morning. I was thinking about the churches out there and the mentality is that you know, people go to church and, oh, that church doesn't care how I dress. Or, well, they make you dress like that there. Folks, I remember we had this uh, student group that came from the high school to our church every year and the teacher would love to bring it to our church because we'd tell them the truth. So it was a Christian Mennonite Studies teacher in high school that every year took his class to the Baptist church so that we could teach them some of the principles of music and even principles of dress. Because he saw how crazy it was in high school. And he would just string along. He would feed it. He'd say, uh, so what about this? Because <laughs> the students are supposed to ask the questions. Sometimes they don't know what to ask. So he just kind of says, well, let me ask you a question. And he starts it off. And he just loved it. Principles, you know, that make sense. You know, I remember I had this one question from this high schooler. How do I have to dress if I come to your church? Now, they're trying, to, they're trying to catch me. I said, let me tell you something. You can come to our church any way you want. I would say be respectful of people. Don't, don't do something you know wouldn't be right. But then I said, let me get to, to what you're really saying. I'm going to tell you why I wear a suit, why I wear a tie. It's not that I like it. I'd much rather be more comfortable but I want to give God my best. That's it. I had somebody say, well, how am I supposed to dress? I don't have a suit. I said, just wear your best. Just wear your best. Because he deserves it. You're meeting in the house of God. I understand. Today, it's, it's not the house of God anymore. Today, it's an entertainment center with the smoke shows and the lights and everything flashing and so forth. Who needs a suit and tie and who cares about what God thinks? It's all about me. But that's not this place. This place we want to lift up our God because he's the only one worthy in this whole room. He is the one worthy. So I tell my kids, my boys, oh, Dad, I got to wear a suit. Well, you should. You should. Because you got one. And you tell me, wouldn't that be better than not if you could? Or should I dress down on purpose for God? <laughs> but that's what people feel proud of today. I'm allowed to dress down on purpose. Folks, it's one thing to come with your best, no matter what that is. It's another thing to come with the mentality of dressing down for God. Because somehow God doesn't care. God is worthy of your best. Amen. Give it to him. It's not about the preacher. It's not about the church. It's about God. Amen. If we were to say, hey, at one o'clock, we all got an appointment now. We're going to go into the throne room of God. Go choose your wardrobe. It's, it's easy to talk all flippant and, you know, when it's not real to you. Prime Minister is coming. Maybe not this one, but <laughs> the one you like. <laughs> what would you dress? 
important political figure, what would you dress like? God dressed out. Is he real? <laughs> Throne room of grace. Everything he's done. Everything he's sacrificed. I'm going to flippantly enter into his presence like somehow it doesn't matter. See, it's got to go to another level than just spiritual elite. It's got to be our adoration and love for our God. That's why you do things to protect people. That's why you dress right. That's why you act right. See, it all starts with first loving God, and then because you love him, you love others. And because you love others, you don't want them to stumble. And you would do nothing to ever stumble anybody because you love them too much. Now, you don't care. That becomes very obvious. Amen? Amen. But here we are. All men are saved the same way. We know that in Scripture. The Jews weren't saved differently than, than, than the Gentiles. Now, people will try to tell you that. They'll try to say, somehow Jews were works, Gentiles. <laughs> Study the Bible is all I got to say. That's just foolish talk. Folks, the Bible says, for there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. No difference. No difference is no difference. Righteousness must come through Christ. It's a dangerous thing for you to say that Jews get saved by works, Gentiles get saved by grace, and then others say, well, in the tribulation, it's going back to works again. Now, that's confusing. The question is this, where does righteousness come from? That's what we're learning in Romans. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. Wherein the gospel so, Romans 3.22 says this, Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Justified freely. Justified means declared righteous. Now, what's that word freely mean? I've been declared righteous freely. Now, if you look at the definition of that word, this is what it means. Without a cause. I've been declared righteous without a cause. Which means God looking at me, looking in my heart, looking in everything that I could do, anything I could produce, he says, there is absolutely nothing in you that qualifies for the righteousness I'm giving to you today. It has to be a free gift. See, that's what Romans is teaching us. Romans is teaching us that the source of righteousness is God. Then you've got people that saying, we don't want your righteousness. Well, he says, well, then you will have to pay the price. Then you get other people that manufacture their own righteousness. Then he says, you'll have to pay the price. <laughs> then you got other people that say, we've got the law, we must be righteous. He says, you'll have to pay the price. Because all of them think the same thing. That it's about you. That's why in Romans chapter 3, the next chapter, he gets into the details. <laughs> He starts to tell you, let me tell you where righteousness really comes from. And let me tell, me tell you what it really does for you. <laughs> See, that's the key. And that's why you got to be careful of these people out there that are also teaching this free grace movement. Just pray a prayer, you go to heaven. Folks, it's not about that. You know what sends you to hell? A lack of righteousness. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Uh, how about... Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are they that mourn. Blessed, blessed are the poor in spirit. Right? 
Blessed are they that mourn. Why? Because you're poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Why? Because there's no way you can control your life because you've got no control. You've got to submit to someone else. And then at the peak of that, blessed are they which hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. That's the peak. And then it starts coming down. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are they which are persecuted. You see, this aspect is a repentance leading to the aspect of righteousness. This side is leading down towards man. How that imputed righteousness affects the way I deal with people. Mercy, pure in heart, persecution. Amen? And people say the Beatitudes have nothing to do with the Christian church. It has everything to do with it. He's giving us a definition of what repentance really is. Because right before that, Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Poor in spirit. Poverty. Nothing in there. Mourning. Dear God, I have got nothing. Meekness. You have everything, God. I have nothing. Hungering. Lord, please give it to me. And he gives us his righteousness. Don't tell me just a quick prayer is salvation. It's trusting Christ, your righteousness. It's trusting him, the one that fulfilled all righteousness. It's trusting him, the one that afforded you the ability to be righteous before your God. So that's everything in salvation right there. Amen. And it's so simple for us to receive. He made it so easy. So these Gentiles, they're looked at as dogs. Because the Jews thought somehow, we've got some righteousness. We're establishing our own righteousness here. And they were so wrong. And God says, you're in my courtroom now. So what does he do? He convinces them. This was the purpose for the gift of tongues. See, that's another thing, folks. The reason why we preach against what's going on today in churches is because it's a manipulation of what it's really for, yeah. the gift of tongues. In fact, there is no need for it right now. If God wants somebody to speak in another language and so someone gets saved, that's his business. But as far as the, the scriptural use of tongues, which means languages, uh, the word tongue is either this <laughs> or it's a language that you speak out of that. But it's all literal languages. The reason why in the scripture, and I'll, I'll give you the scripture. So Peter gets called to Cornelius' house. He says, hey, uh, it's not even lawful for me to even be here. But God said, I'm not supposed to call unclean what he has called clean. So that's why I'm coming on in. And I'm sure his heart says, and he goes in there and he starts preaching Christ. And the Bible says, while Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on them which heard the word. Yeah. And they of the circumcision which believed were astonished. Who? What? What? Why were they astonished? They never saw a person saved before? I mean, they just came from Pentecost. 3,000 souls got saved in one day. Why are they astonished when one man gets saved? Because he was a Gentile. As many as came with Peter. So you know there's a bunch of Jewish people with Peter as he's preaching the gospel to Cornelius because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. How did they know that? For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then answered Peter, Can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized? which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then prayed they, uh, prayed they him to, certain, to tarry certain days. So the tongues was given to show them that the Holy Ghost was gifted to them the same it was to the Jews. And you know, when you get saved, same thing happens to you that happened to Cornelius. While someone's preaching, while the gospel's being given, while he yet spake the Holy Ghost because you believed in your heart. Now they may say, pray this prayer. <laughs> you were saved 10 minutes ago. Amen. But it's okay to pray a prayer. You can say, hey, I prayed and received Jesus Christ that day. But you know what? 
a lot of us be surprised actually when it was we got saved. Because it's the moment you said, I believe. The moment you trusted, your heart opened up, and immediately the Spirit went in. <laughs> Amen. That's what happens. So I'm going to give you a couple of scripture here. 1 Corinthians 14, 21. Uh, dealing with a carnal church at Corinth about tongues. It says, In the law it is written, With men of other tongues and other lips will I speak unto this people. And yet for all that will they not hear me, saith the Lord. So it was a sign. It was something God was using to reach his own people. Wherefore, tongues are for a sign. Not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. But prophesying serveth not for them that believe not, but for them that believe. So basically it's like this. 1 Corinthians 1.22, this is what it says. For the Jews require a sign. And Greeks seek after wisdom. Every time tongues was used in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, there were Jews there that were struggling with unbelief of what God was doing with the Gentiles. And so God used tongues to show the Jews that I have received them as well as you. And Romans chapter 2, he's just reiterating once again, guys, it's not that you have the law. They have it in their own hearts. They are as accepted as you. <laughs> that was hard to get across to them, you understand? So I'll tell you what's not happening in all these churches, all this tongues that's going on, it's not talking about unbelieving Jews. There's no scriptural purpose. You got to remember, all of the miracles, anything that has happened, any of the sign gifts, anything that the scripture reveals to us in Acts was already pre-prophesied in scripture. That means you don't ever do something unless the Bible says this is why you're doing it. But today we just says, well, we're going to do it because the Bible did it. No, you don't do it because the Bible said they did it. You do it because the Bible says you're going to do it. Do you understand? <laughs> That's why Jesus gave the prerequisites for the apostles' authority. <laughs> this is what will happen with those that follow after me because he knew that they were dealing with oral tradition, not the written word. So he knew that they had to authorize their message by signs and wonders because they didn't have the word of God in front of them. They would have to hear this new doctrine through their mouth. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. The problem is there is no apostles' doctrine written in any book yet. But they verified it with signs and wonders that were pre-prophesied by Jesus Christ. Amen? So if tongues are used, the use of tongues has to be pre-prophesied. And the only thing the Bible talks about is that they were a sign to the unbelieving Jews. You get that. But it sure makes people feel spiritual. It's deception. Deception. It has nothing to do with your spirituality. Because that is the movement. I speak with tongues, do you? Self-Phariseeism. Sorry, don't accept it. We are Biblicists. Literal, grammatical interpretation of Scripture. And if the Bible don't say it, I don't believe it. And I don't care what you can demonstrate to me. I don't care what the experience is because the Antichrist will call down fire from heaven and anybody that knows the word of God will say, this is false. But a lot of people say, who else could do this? This must be true. But we're saying, I am a biblicist. This is false. But you're working against experience. Yes. We believe the Bible. Amen. Amen. Acts 11, verse 18. In verse number 11, or chapter 11, it's interesting because after this whole detail with, with Cornelius, Peter and these Jews that were astonished that these 
Gentiles would receive the Holy Ghost just like they did on the day of Pentecost, they said, wow, let's go tell the boys. (laughs) And the whole next chapter, a lot of it, is given to this report they're giving back to Jerusalem about how it is that this Gentile was received. See, that's why Jesus gave Peter the keys for the kingdom. This was one of the doors that Peter unlocked. He unlocked the Samaritans. Remember, him and John went after they were getting saved and they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Ghost. First lock. Second lock, the Gentiles. He walks in there. He's got the key in his hand. I don't know about this. Now God told me this is legit. Sure enough, God confirmed it. He goes back to Jerusalem, unlocks the door. That's what the keys to the kingdom mean. It doesn't mean that once you die and go to heaven, he's going to be standing there at the gate letting you in. (laughs) Amen. It had a very practical purpose in the New Testament. He was used by God in the initial uh, book of Acts to open up the gospel to the world. And that's why immediately at this time, there's a transition stage in uh, chapter 9 and 11 where the apostle Paul got saved and now he's the apostle to the Gentile. And chapter 11, it's amazing because here Peter goes to the Jews and says, hey, the Gentiles are receiving the Holy Ghost. And Acts chapter 11, that's where you see the church. Somebody help me. It's slipping my brain. Chapter 11. The Gentile church, first Gentile church. Antioch. That church gets established. And then they have a meeting in Acts 15. Whoa, what are we going to do with all this? These Gentiles are out there. They got a church going. They're doing all these things. (laughs) They got these Jews going in there. Hey, hold on there. You guys just can't have church without the law. So they tried to enforce the law on on the Gentile people. And so they had to have a big meeting back in Jerusalem. They called it everybody together. James, the pastor of the church of Jerusalem, stands up as the mediator. Peter was there. Paul was there. They were all there, hashing it out. And when it got down to the end of that, they just said, you know what? We can't force any of the law upon the Gentiles. See, it all has to do with Romans chapter 2, what he's saying here. (laughs) The law versus conscience. Do you understand that, folks? See, a lot of people want to operate by the law. (laughs) Ten Commandments. But you know what? That was never God's plan to operate just by the law. His plan was always to operate internally. (laughs) That's why he gave every man the ability to discern internally. He lighteth every man that cometh into the world. But the thing is, it's imperfect without God's guidance. That's why he gave us his word. Now his word, what it does is once we're, our conscience is purged by salvation, when we receive Christ as our Savior, the blood of Christ purges our conscience, the Bible says, to serve God from dead works. And once our conscience has been purged, now it can be formed in a very specific way, exactly the way God wants it. But every person that's born has a form of it. That initial right and wrong is there. It's just not taken form yet. Amen? But once salvation comes, and once the word of God comes into your heart, Every conscience in in this room gets sensitized to the truth. I had somebody tell me, well, you know what? If I don't feel convicted, then I don't think I have to do it. I said, well, the problem is, it may be that you have to do it, but because you've already hardened your conscience, you don't feel you have to do it. So this whole thing about, oh, I know the church teaches that, but I'm not convicted. There's probably something wrong with you. See, 
If you're taught something long enough, it will take the form of that teaching. Like I say, it's just like a Buddhist feels bad that he didn't leave the rice at the altar that day. And they, they feel terribly convicted. But the conscience can't function without Christ. It can't function properly without it. But initially as a child, when a child is born, guess what? It, it's it's going to work as best as it could without Christ. That's why children should get saved. <laughs> but it says, and it's the same thing when I, I was talking to somebody this week, door knocking, and they said, yeah, when I was 12 years old, I got saved. I says, well, that's great. Yeah, but since then I went to a church and I said, ah, that's enough for me. And now, you know, this person's sitting at 40 years old, 50, never been in church. So what happened there? You came with your conscience as, as well formed as it could be. You came to Christ and he purged it. But then what happened is you got involved with the wrong group and they began to form your conscience based upon lies. And the Bible says that they're seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. And the Bible says that they will sear your conscience. So lies sear and defile your conscience while truth clears up your conscience and forms it to the image of Christ. So don't tell me this just because I don't have conviction. That's where you go back to the scripture because the Bible says the the word is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So the conscience cannot become your complete guide, but it is the initial thing that points you to the light. And when you find the light, Christ shows up. (laughs) And when Christ shows up, he says, read my word. And you'll be conformed to the image of my son. And so we spend time in the book and we become sensitive to the things of God. And that's why you don't get offended at the preacher when he brings up the hard sayings. Because in your heart you know it's true. Amen. And I'll guarantee you the only thing you get offended about are those things you've already hardened your conscience to. You get that. Law versus conscience. Well, preacher, you show me exactly what... (laughs) Pharisee. That's why the new covenant given to Israel is not going to be on tables of stone. He says, the new covenant I'm giving to you, I'm going to write my law on your hearts. But it's amazing in this passage how he's already saying that the Gentiles already have it somewhat written on their hearts. It's always been God's plan. (laughs) Work from the inside out. Amen? It's a process, and I didn't get to that today because we're running out of time. (laughs) If you understand that, I hope I got across. (laughs) I hope it brought understanding.